So if you've got your Bibles, go there, Acts chapter 18. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I, so uh, let me confess something to you a little bit. I don't do this very often, but Acts chapter 18 is not where I told Todd we were going to be uh, earlier this week. He said, hey, where are we going to be? I said, well, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians because we're starting actually a, a series uh, today in 2 Corinthians. It's a blueprint series. We're talking about the church. We're talking about the vision of the church, reminding ourselves why it is we're doing what we're doing. And, and what's uh, fascinating is I thought, well, I'll go back and look at uh, the history of the Corinthian church since we're going to be there. And if you were to do that, you go back to um, Acts chapter 18. And so, I, I was just looking, doing some background on, on the Corinthian church, and I thought, you know, I think this is where I want to start. I think this is where we need to start. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. One, we had a trustee elder meeting this week, which um, kind of translate for you the difference between trustees and shepherds. The shepherds are the um, really cool elders that are on every one of our campuses, the ones we all know and, and visit us in the hospital and make phone calls. The trustees are the boring elders, all right? These are the guys that have to meet every month. We talk about the boring things like church policies and budgets and all of those things. And so, um, the short straw guys always end up being the trustees, it turns out. Not really. But we were together as trustees. We're talking about the church. We're talking about all of these things that are coming. And we'd had such excitement over the last couple of months because we're, we're, uh, you know, we're getting to come back. And everything's, you know, opening back up and all the ministries are starting again. You just heard Chad say we're going to go back to two hours of children's ministry and, and all of this. And yet, on Tuesday, we were just feeling the weight of everything we're hearing on the news all over again. Just all over again. Here's, you know, I thought we were through the, the coronavirus. I thought COVID was, was in the rearview mirror and yet... Man, here it is all of a sudden in front of our windshield again. Not only that, as we prayed for the church and we prayed for each other in the first part of our meeting, it was just so evident that, and this is a group of guys who are mature, who've walked with the Lord for a long time, folks that we all go to for counsel in our lives. I mean, these are great men. And around that table, every single one is carrying a burden. A burden too big for them all by themselves. And I mean, we just, we just prayed and we just went to the Lord and we just, in many ways, just humbled ourselves. So the Lord, we're just reminded all over again of all the things we can't do in our own strength and that you have to do, and we can't fix all the things that are going on in our lives. You've, you've got to show up. You've got to be there. And what was great is we, we ended the meeting, and it was, I think, God's providence. We had already planned to talk about this to remind ourselves Tuesday night what the church is and realizing those things connect. I mean, all the burdens we feel and all the disappointments we feel or discouragements or the heaviness that's just 
in the world all around us right now. What do we do with all that? And the answer truly is the church. The answer is that where we find ourselves under this covering and grace of God is is nowhere else in this world. But right here in the middle of the church. You know, I think if this pandemic over the last 15, 16, 18 months has done anything, it um, it has duped a lot of people into thinking they don't need the church anymore. That all we need is a um, you know, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning with, a, with an iPad or, a, or, or, you know, some YouTube access, and that that's all we need. And the truth is, that's, oh, man, we need so much more than that. Well, so that's why I'm in Acts 18. I, I want to I just walk through it. I want to show you a couple of things and make some application. And at some point here in the middle, I want to remind us all this morning, you know, like we... we talked about on Tuesday night. What is the church? What is this thing Paul is called to? I'll start this way. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, he wrote this. He, he, uh, this is, this is, he wrote it a few years ago. He could have wrote, he could have written it yesterday and it would still apply. He says, I doubt that there is any subject more timely than discouragement. So many folks I meet are playing out their entire lives in a minor key. There's a grinding discouragement that follows an an unachieved goal or a failed romance. Some are discouraged over their marriage, which began with such promise but now seems hopeless. Lingering ill health can discourage and demoralize its victim, especially when the pain won't go away. And who can't identify with the individual who gave it his best shot, yet took it on the chin from a few self-appointed critics. Discouragement. We all know that. We all know what discouragement is. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher in London, the whole world knew who Charles Spurgeon was in his lifetime in the 19th century. It was a very rare thing in the 19th century for the world to know who you are while you're alive. And and he was uh, in London, and and, in his whole life he battled discouragement. He had one of the most far-reaching ministries of preaching and teaching and discipling of any believer in any generation, established schools and orphanages, and people would travel all over the world to hear him preach, dignitaries, kings, queens, presidents. He labored tirelessly. His wife would later write about her husband that there were times he would be so discouraged he could not even get out of bed for days. More recently, one of my heroes, one of my professors at seminary, great professor and a lot of folks that if you've been around the church while, well, you know the name Howard Hendricks. It's a stalwart at Dallas Seminary. They're over 40 years, almost 50. Passed away a few years ago, and at his funeral, all three of his children 
spoke, and, and they were so honoring of him and, and loving. And they told, though, how their dad had fiercely battled discouragement and depression. Surprising to me. The great Howard Hendricks. He, he wrote in his journal, he wrote this, self-pity is absolutely devastating. I think I have set a new record for resigning from the institution. Said one day, my wife said, honey, why don't you just write out the resignation letter, put it in a drawer, it'll save you a lot of trouble. It's why I'm drawn to Acts 18 this morning. I love this passage. It gives us a glimpse of Paul that we don't normally think about. And when you put it together with what you read in his letter, so he wrote, ended up writing four letters to the church in Corinth. This is where the church in Corinth starts. We only have two of the Corinth letters. While he was in Corinthians, he wrote two letters to the Thessalonians. We can put together a lot of things that Paul writes in the letters to find what kind of shape Paul was in when he shows up in Corinth. It's interesting, we find that Paul is really a lot like you and a lot like me. He's not shielded from the hardships that come in life, and he was not immune from the discouragement. Paul was overwhelmed when you show up in Acts 18. See, sometimes uh, A.W. Tozer says, when we get overwhelmed, we forget how big God is. That's where Paul was. So we get a glimpse of God this morning. The God who's faithful, who never leaves us, never forsakes us, comes and meets us in the very midst of our discouragement, and he does this right in the middle of the church, not apart from it. Look at what it says. We'll read a few verses. We'll just walk through the time we have. Acts chapter 18, beginning verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he, was sent, uh, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, and, for they were tent makers by trade. So, he, here's the deal. This is the coming up on the end of Paul's second missionary journey. At the beginning of this second missionary journey, Paul is full of life and courage, okay? He's got this conflict with Barnabas, you know, over John Mark, and he and Barnabas split, but he's not, he's not deterred. He picks up Silas. He ends up recruiting Timothy along the way. You go a little further, the second missionary journey is Acts 16 to 18. You go a little further in chapter 16, and, and Paul's faith in Philippi, I mean, it is strong, In in Thessalonica and Berea, where he goes after that, 
Luke's going to highlight uh, the, the gifts of Bible exposition. Paul was, 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 had hit his stride in teaching God's Word. I mean, it was, it was lighting these communities up. In Athens, here at the end of 17, just before we get to this where it says, you know, Paul, after, after Paul left Athens, in Athens we get a glimpse of Paul's startling intellect, that his mind is sharp, that he can stand there on Mars Hill toe-to-toe with the philosophers of the day. But here in Corinth, we see a different Paul. In fact, Paul will write later to the Corinthians that, that, that it's not, it wasn't my strength that brought glory to God in, in Corinth. In fact, my strengths weren't on display at all. I'll tell you what was on display. My weakness was on display. You find from Paul, he was battling discouragement. Maybe he'd be on the verge of what we call today burnout. There's this walk from Athens to Corinth. If you go there today, you can make the, make the walk. Nobody does, but you could. It's 53 miles. You go from Athens, you walk 53 miles to Corinth. And in Corinth, I mean, this place was Sin City. 200,000 people, the trade capital of the world in its day. It, you know, the east and the west met there in this four-mile crossing. The north and the south was a major trade. A thousand prostitutes roamed the streets at night. This is Corinth. Paul has left Athens, walks 53 miles to Las Vegas after having been, what the text tells us, soundly defeated in many ways. So, in verse 2, he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, and this is their, uh, the, the introduction. Aquila, he's a Jewish man who was a native of Pontus. He'd settled with his wife Priscilla in Rome, and they were part of the church there in Rome. But what happened is in A.D. 49, about a year or two before Paul meets him, the emperor at the time, Emperor Claudius, he had responded. There was this upheaval going on with the Jews. Ancient writers tell us it was probably an, an a disagreement about Christ, but it had thrown the city in turmoil. So, Claudius, Claudius, he fixed the deal. He thought, well, I'll just expel all the Jews from Rome. Whether you were a Jew, whether you were a Christian, it, it didn't matter. If you were Jewish, you got kicked out, and there's probably 50,000 people that get kicked out of Rome overnight. And Aquila and Priscilla were part of that. They were part of the church. They were forced to leave. They come to Corinth with what they could carry to try to rebuild a life for themselves. They'd have no idea when they might be able to go back. 
And I know, listen, I'm talking about Paul this morning, and I don't want to miss that, but imagine their discouragement. I mean, Lord, what in the world are we doing in Corinth? There's no believers. There's no church. We've lost everything. This isn't what we planned on. They're tent makers. Tent makers. Jews. Christians. And they are in Corinth alone. But it turns out they're not there by accident. They're there by providence. See, God had strategically located them in a place where they did not want to be. to intersect with a purpose that was going to be beyond their wildest dreams. Can you imagine when Paul showed up on their front porch, a day like any other day in Corinth, but a day that would change the direction of their life? They surely didn't dream of retiring in Corinth. In a few verses, they're going to go, you know, they're going to pack up and take with them all, all they had, and they're going to go off on a missionary journey. They might have been surprised when they met Paul, though. See, assuming they had heard the stories about Paul, and surely they had, and it had reached, you know, their Christian circles, they probably imagined him a little bit like, you know, William Wallace. You know, Mel Gibson just shows up on your front porch. They look at each other and think, I think this is Paul. Paul, you know, Paul, fierce and dynamic and a force to be reckoned with. That is not who they find. When he shows up, they encounter a man who, by Paul's own testimony, was half dead, discouraged, broke, in the midst of one of the hardest times of his life. a lot of scholars and commentators that have written about the sickness that Paul had begun to endure, the pace of ministry, the um, discouragement that very well may have come out of his encounter in Athens at the end of chapter 17, and then this long 52, 53-mile walk to Corinth. Paul will say startling things in the Gospels about how much he suffered, how much he wasn't at rest. Much of what he says points back to this time. So many of you here You're in ministry. I mean, some of you don't think about it that way because you'll wake up tomorrow and you'll go to a job and somebody expects you to be there and you've got a boss that's going to tell you what to do and you've got money to make or sales quotas to meet or, or shifts to cover. You, you think of church or you think of your spiritual life or you think of religion or you think of your life with Christ as something that happens here on, on Sunday morning. But the truth is, you're in ministry. So, some of you are in full-time ministry. I know that. Some of you are elders or you serve as deacons. In fact, here in just the second service, we're going to install a 
new set of elder and deacons that we, that we affirmed last week. Some of you teach Sunday school, serve in our children's ministry. Some of you are greeters or you know, you're, you're, you're making sure that when folks come here the first time, it's a great first impression. You're wanting to connect with them. Is some of you, some of you, your ministries, you, your mom, your dad. You're, you're, in, you're in ministry if you're a believer. And I'll tell you, much of ministry is very discouraging. And, and there are times where you get somebody you think, what am I doing? Why is this, what, is, is any of this worth it? God, what are you, have you forgotten about me? It doesn't feel like I'm winning all the time. In fact, it feels a lot like I'm losing all the time. Paul would later write to the Corinthians. He'll say this, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He also said this, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. That was in 1 Corinthians. and 2 Corinthians, he'll write, and when I was with you and, and was in need, I didn't burden anybody. The brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. We'll see that in a second. So I refrained, and we'll refrain from burdening you in any way. It's not hard to see God's hand is going to show up in Corinth and his providence in this relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. So every time Aquila and Priscilla are spoken of, by the way, these tent makers, Paul calls them dear friends. They ministered to Paul. We never see where Paul ministers to them. They always are ministering to Paul or to Apollos or to somewhere else in the church. Listen, God is so good to put his people in our path to divinely intersect our journeys with one another. That's part of the design of the, of the church. Paul needed them for survival. The, the vision of their life and their ministry, this couple that just landed out of Rome into Corinth, there's no church, man, but they're just started making tents and praying to the Lord, what are you going to do? It was like this dark night giving way to the dawn for Paul. That's the way God works. He gives us what we need when we need it. He gives it to us. He gives us to us what only He can give. And by His grace and for His glory, we don't we don't get all the details all at once. He, he, what he does, he meets our needs, satisfies our longings. He does that. While still granting us the gift of living by faith and relying on his grace. See, I think a lot of times when we go to God, we go to God and we say, okay, God, here's the deal. Man, I'm discouraged. I'm 
kind of broken down. I have a lot of needs. I need you to show up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you call yourself the God of all comfort. So I want you to comfort all my discomfort. And that's what I do. I mean, you do it, I do it. God, I, I, my list is long. I need you to show up. What I really am praying, and, I, and not, not, I'm not doing it on purpose and with malice aforethought, but what I'm really saying is, I don't want to live by faith anymore. I want you to give me all the answers. I want you to lay it all out. I want to see everything, how it's going to work out. If I can just see how everything's going to work out, I'll be just fine. I, I'm, I'm tired of having need. I'm tired of being discouraged. I want you to take all of that away. I don't want to live by faith anymore. And yet, he does meet our needs. He does satisfy our longings. He, but he does it in a way where he still grants us the gift of living by faith and relying on his grace because what God does, he does it perfectly. When Leslie and I Oh, we had been married two years. I told you some of this before if you've been around Bethel, but we'd been married for two years, and um, we had just had Maggie. Maggie was about two weeks old, and we moved uh, from our hometown where we had parents and grandparents and support system and everything. Um, eight and a half hours away to, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, but not the nice part of Tulsa, Oklahoma, the armpit of Oklahoma, Sand Springs. And we moved there to, going to be an area director for Young Life there in the West Tulsa area. We moved over there and thought it was a good idea to move my two-week, my wife, who had just given birth to our first daughter who was two weeks old. Well, it didn't take long, and we were lonely. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you, I've never been so lonely in my life, and Leslie was too. And I'll tell you, if you're, if you're lonely, um, you, you quickly realize my, my wife, my, my bride of two years cannot in any way meet all these needs I have. And I sure couldn't meet all hers. You throw a two-week-old baby in there who we have no idea what we're doing. And it was lonely. And I'll tell you, the only way that I can say it is that we found a church, but that's not exactly true. I would say the church found us by God's grace. Leslie had gotten out one day, and she went to this little park because she thought, I've got to get out of the house. I've got to take this little baby. We've got to go do something outside. So she goes to this park that was not too far from our house, and she's there, and, oh, you know, just trying to do something with this little girl. And there was an older woman, and you hardly talk about her, name was Mary. And she was on a walk, and she saw Leslie there and saw Catherine, and 
I don't know. I guess the Lord just moved her. And so she comes over. She strikes up a conversation with her and begins asking about her and then gets her phone number and calls and checks on her and became a friend and who got nothing out of the thing. But I mean, she just all of a sudden showed up and just started loving my wife and my daughter. It wasn't too long after that, the Lord led us to this church, and I, you know, I told you before, I was kind of half-hearted about the church, but I'm telling you, you get lonely, you get desperate. If you're a believer, you realize, oh man, I need the church. So we found this church, and oh, it was great, the Lord was so gracious to us, and put people in our life, and it I say we found the church. The church found us. It changed our life. It changed our marriage. It's hard to point to it was this thing or it was this sermon or it was this life group or it was it. I don't. It was all those things, I guess. But it was. It was being in the midst of what God was doing and putting ourselves. Under that. And man, we experience God's grace in all kinds of ways. Well, I got a few more verses, and I'm taking too much time. This is why I'm here, though. I mean, here's Paul. He shows up. He lands at the church on the doorstep at the end of himself. And God's going to do something remarkable. In verse 4 through 6, Luke has condensed this story. You see, you get more picture of it throughout Paul's letters. Luke kind of collapses some of this stuff. In verse 4, it says this, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. What you see is Paul's not successful at this. I mean, he's doing it. He's faithful to do it. He's not knocking it out of the park. Sometimes he goes to the synagogue. All the Jews are like, Paul, you're really awesome. That's not what's happening in Corinth. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy show up. They arrive from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews and, and um, that the Christ was Jesus. They opposed him. They reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is a great moment. It, comes right out of Ezekiel 33 where Paul is essentially saying, I've done all I can for you. And you're not listening to me. Your blood's on your heads. I'm, I'm going to go find a new audience. So what he does, he walks out of the synagogue, goes next door to a guy's house and starts teaching the Gentiles. There's this provision that shows up. I don't have a lot of time to get into it, but man, Paul's depleted of everything. He's relationally, financially, everything. He's in the midst of discouragement. First people he encounters are uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and then, uh, and, and then his mates, you know, Silas and Timothy, they show up. They bring the, some gifts from the churches and some encouragement. And so now Paul's, man, he's beginning to ramp back up. His, his tank has gone from empty, and it's, it's slowly beginning to fill up is what we see. And then God does this incredibly 
gracious thing. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, let me help you know how to read that for a minute. I have many in this city who are my people, and they don't know it yet. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. In my counseling training, one of the things we learned was the value of reframing, helping a client or a friend, for that matter, step back from a situation at hand and then reframe the facts. Sometimes our emotions can be so strong, we've got the difficulty, you know, we have this difficulty seeing and applying truths that we know. Paul's overwhelmed. We know this because of what God tells him. Do not be afraid. Don't worry about this, Paul. I've got it. He reminds him of the promise. I, I'm not ever going to leave you. Gives him courage. Don't be silent. I want you to continue doing what you're doing because what I'm doing in the midst of Corinth, whether you can see it or not, whether you feel it or not, I'm doing this thing called the church. You being discouraged or burned out or had a bad season, that doesn't change, Paul, what I'm doing. He gives Paul this vision, this hope. It's incredibly important for us to see what the Lord's saying to Paul. He says, ah, you've got many people here. And ultimately, what Paul comes to realize is your current suffering, your discouragement, all these hard things you're going through, it's going to be a great blessing to them because I'm going to use your weakness and I'm going to draw them to myself. It's Paul's weakness and depression and discouragement that he's going to use here. In Athens, it was like I said, this was intellect. Philippi, it was his faith. Thessalonica, Berea, it was this, you know, expository ability. But here in Corinth, God is going to plant this church. He is going to call people to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and the means by which he's going to do it is the weakness of Paul. It will not be wasted. It's like God saying to Paul, this is what I'm doing. And it's called the church, and don't be afraid to give your life away to this. This is the safest place in the world, Paul, despite all the things you're going through. God's letting Paul know He's going to be right in the middle of this thing. Right in the middle of the church. Right in the middle of the people that are His. Real quickly, let me just define the church for you. Let me tell you what the church is. 
And then we'll move on. I'll talk about it more in a couple of weeks. But this is, this is the church. Just to remind us, who, we, who are we? What are we doing here this morning? The church is this. The church is the people of God, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We are the first fruits of the kingdom of God. Right here. In the midst of a sinful and rebellious world. Get a hold of this. We're a people, you and me this morning, belonging to God who were purchased with the blood of His Son. We're His own possession. We're called the bride of His eternal Son, and we're cared for by God through elders. He calls to watch over us and protect us. And deacons, He calls to serve us and lead us, lead the way, show us how to serve. That's who we are. And our mission, what we're here for, we're to go into the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, the whole creation, calling all people to faith, making disciples, glorifying God through His Son Jesus by the power of His Holy Spirit, bearing fruit of the kingdom and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we're here to do. This is what God is right in the middle of. And we do all this so that Jesus is worshipped and exalted to the glory of the Father. And God's saving power would be known to the ends of the earth. Not that your preacher would be famous. Not that your church's music would be listened to on every radio station across the world. Those things are fine, whatever. They're not why we exist, though. We exist so that Jesus is worshipped. In the whole world, to the ends of the earth, no God-saving power. And that would begin for us right here where we live. Because I think God would say the same thing to us. I, I've got so many people in this community that are mine. And some of them don't even know it yet. It's where you come in. It's where we come in. Your, your darkness, your discouragement, things you're struggling with, listen, that, believe it or not, I think what God is saying here through Paul's experience is even your discouragement, even what feels real dark to you right now, that's going to be a light to others. It's a weakness in your life that's not going to be wasted. It's a weakness that is going to draw others into the light. And when we cling to God, we cling to this gospel of Jesus in the midst of our darkness or our discouragement or whatever you may be personally going through this morning, it shines a light so bright. It is the power of God in us. There are people in your life called by God to be His children that need to encounter the gospel that will save them. That's a truth. Here's another truth. God's at work in your life, and you may feel the most inadequate to work for God. 
He's going to do it in the midst of the church. And you realize it's the place you experience. He never being forsaken or forgotten or failed by God, whose name, the Old Testament, his name's faithful. Well, in verses 12 through 17, so great, I don't even have time to get it. Paul goes before this Bama seat on a trial, and, and he's about to have to give an answer for himself, and it turns out he doesn't even have to say a word. God's going to show up, move the whole situation around him, show up to defend his weak and trembling apostle. God's going to take care of it. I'll show you one more thing, verse 18, and we'll be done. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. year and a half he was there. Took leave, set sail for Syria. Took Priscilla and Aquila with him. And at Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. This is a weird verse there at the end, the hair-cutting vow thing. Just like Luke throws it in, and you're like, whoa, I have so many questions about that. Tree forests have been killed trying to explain it. I don't, I don't know exactly everything that was going on with Paul there, but he, here, here's what I can tell you is, is while much of Paul's life was lived in this public arena, you know, he's in front of people and he's doing this thing and he's, you know, suffering for others' sake and his life, and it's very public and, and you know, but whatever was going on there at the end of verse 18, that was something that was part of his private worship, his private devotion with the Lord, a private between he and God. It's this glimpse that Paul continued, even apart from what he did in public, to cultivate his personal spiritual walk, not apart from the church, under the covering of the church, but he continued to nurture this relationship. You see Jesus do it. Jesus, who is the very Son of God, he would rise early in the morning while his disciples were still asleep. They'd wake up. They'd find him gone. Where is he? Jesus would come back and say, oh, I was, I was meeting with my father. Our spiritual life has to be more than just Sunday morning here. It's not less than it. Not less than meeting together as the church, but it but it has to be more. My life has to be more than Sunday morning. It has to be more than just preparing to teach on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or to be with the elders. My life has to be rooted in a relationship with God, pouring my heart out to Him, searching the Scriptures for nourishment daily. When discouragement comes for me, and listen, it does. It comes. I have to run to the God I know, not just a God I talk about. Cling to those moments. 
part of what being the church is as well. You clinging and I clinging, all coming together. In 1871, Horatio Spafford, his son, who was age four, died in this tragic accident. Later that year in 1871, Spafford was a, an attorney in Chicago, and his law practice was destroyed by the great Chicago fire. He lost everything. He had just begun rebuilding his life when two years later, he sends his wife and his daughters to England ahead of him. He's, they're going to go on a family vacation. They're going to go get things settled. He's going to meet up with them. Um, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship sank. His four daughters perished. The way he, the message he got from his wife over a telegram was a message just said two words, saved alone. It's a man who knew discouragement, hardship. Just when he was getting his breath back, the wind knocked out of him all over again. Well, he's got to leave. He's still got to go over to England, get on a ship, meet his wife, take care of the arrangements. They were passing by on the ship as best that he could tell where his daughters had drowned in the water there in the Atlantic. Overwhelmed with grief and discouragement, he sat there on the deck of the ship, wrote these words. You know them. Trying to do this for effect, I'm just want us to be reminded that as a child of God in the midst of the darkest night. is able to write when peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrow like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. It is well. It is well. Though Satan should buffet through trials, and trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. He writes words that come out of Paul's words that he wrote to the Thessalonians when he's in Corinth. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul, and Lord haste the day when my faith becomes sight. 
The clouds rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it's well with my soul. Paul's words from Corinth to the Thessalonians. Spafford's words to us. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray this morning that you'd meet us right where we are. In this room, there's no, we don't even pretend that there's not discouragement. There is. We don't pretend there's not worry. We don't pretend that many of us in here need to hear the words, do not fear, don't be afraid. Father, we need to be reminded that what you're doing is what you've been doing for 2,000 years. It is located and centered right here in the middle of the church of your son Jesus calling people who are yours to faith. And some of them don't even know it yet. And so, Father, I pray you'd, you'd help us, uh, you'd encourage us places where we're discouraged, we would find your grace in the midst of your people, the people of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray by the power of the Spirit.